before you certainly are welcome to turn in your own Bible to Luke chapter 9, which is where we will be the last few verses of that chapter. Last week, you may remember, we took a look at the verses preceding this and considered the roles that a disciple plays in the Christian life, that a disciple, every disciple, man and woman and child, play the roles of a servant and of an intercessor and of a follower of Jesus. And we come now to this text here, and I I honestly did not plan to coordinate this with New Member Joining Sunday. So this is not a picture of the price that you pay in order to join a local church. (laughs) This is for all of you. This is the price that, that one pays in order to follow after Jesus. These are what some would call among the hard sayings of Jesus to his disciples. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 57. As they were walking along the road, a man said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. But that man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. The grass withers and the flowers fade. But these words of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we again ask that you, by your Spirit, would work among us. Enable us, Lord, as we consider these, your words, to recognize the eternal word of Jesus. Father, let us see and understand and believe the good news of your gospel as we consider these brief conversations that Jesus had with people long ago. Father, you know that what words I have to offer are by themselves useless, but if your Spirit works among us, we know that you will work a good harvest among our hearts and our souls and our minds. We pray that you would do that, Lord, for your own glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Just over 30 years ago, when I went off to college, I did something that I don't necessarily recommend. I joined a fraternity. Again, I don't necessarily recommend it. I have reasons for that. But uh, I joined a fraternity. And to become a so-called brother, and I put that in very significant quotes, to become a brother in a fraternity, one has to pay a certain price. Now, literally, you do have to pay money. And so people joke on campus, you, you just bought some friends. And in some ways, that's true. But there are other prices to pay as well. You know, we had to go through the 12 weeks of obligatory pledge training. You have to be trained in order to be a pledge, to be a brother in this particular fraternity, this particular group of of guys, and it was not all bad. I have to say, I, I can say this: I was never forced to violate my conscience, which I, I think often does happen. And and many who have experienced that would say that they were were challenged to violate their conscience. I was never forced to violate my conscience at all. But we often were deprived of sleep, uh, you know, and mostly that was for fun reasons. You know, sometimes at three o'clock in the morning they would wake us all up and. 
the phone call and, and send us on a scavenger hunt or something that would last until 7 a.m. And then we'd return to our dorm rooms just in time to grab our books and head off for an 8 o'clock class. That's always a bad idea when you're in college, but sometimes it's fun. Sometimes we were yelled at for forgetting some trivial detail that we were supposed to remember about this brother or that brother. We forgot the name of his girlfriend, or we forgot the name of his major course of study, or we forgot the name of his hometown, or we forgot the reason why he keeps a pet skunk in his dorm room. Whatever it was, we forgot, and we got yelled at. There were various prices to pay, and then, of course, there was, at the end of those 12 weeks, the infamous Hell Week, as they have called it in the past. I'm not sure if they call it that anymore. Maybe it's not acceptable to even call it that. But it was hell. And uh, it was an experience to remember and at some points to regret along the way of that week. But it was all about bonding and becoming brothers, right? I say all that to say that we are in our culture trained, culturally trained, to invest very great payments into joining worldly organizations that have little or no redemptive value. That's much of what our culture trains us to do. But for many religious people even, the thought of paying a high price for following Jesus is entirely out of bounds. They might think, why why would I do such a thing? Why would I pay a great price. After all, grace is free, right? Why is not following Jesus also free? It is not free. Three people come to Jesus with this proposition of of following Him. Two of them proposing it themselves, that they will follow Him. And that's the common thread among these three. And along with various obstacles and temptations to do other things, they all have this common thread of desiring even to follow Jesus. Evidently, all three of them desire to do so. None of them says no. None of them says, I'm not interested, Jesus. I don't want to do that. None of them does that. All three of them seem to be willing, but each of the three has a hang-up. Each of the three has some condition that they require, some hesitation, which for Jesus is completely non-negotiable. You know, we, again, we, we, we have conditioned ourselves to think grace is free. Why is not following Jesus also free? It simply is not. When I was in campus ministry on the college campus, we had a, a kind of a longstanding joke among us that if you really want to grow a big group of students on a college campus, there are certain ways that you can do that. You can offer free beer and pizza, and the crowds will come. They will come. And we often joked about, well, why don't we just offer free beer and pizza and then preach the gospel to whoever might stay? And, you know, that's just kind of the way of the world. Offer them a product that they want, and then maybe they will come. And very often, churches will operate on the same kind of principle. They may not offer literally free beer and pizza, but it's often a Christian way of thinking that we we need to offer products that people will feel drawn to, that will appeal to. To their sense of need and desire and attract them. Churches often will do that. And then there's Jesus, who's completely opposite of all of those things. He has some very, very hard words for these would-be disciples, these who come to him saying, I'll follow you, but, but let me do this first. 
And he has hard words for them because he's being realistic, because there's a price that a disciple must pay, which is a multifaceted price. And here, through snapshots of these three conversations, Luke gives a picture of three forms of currency, as it were, that must be paid in order to follow Jesus. One of those, one of those currencies is the persuasive power of ordinary expectations. The persuasive power of ordinary expectations. It is a currency that must be laid on the table. It is a price that must be paid in order to follow Jesus. Verse 57, as they were walking along the road, a man said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Okay, so remember, these are are three snapshots of three conversations that happen somewhere along the course of Jesus' ministry. We're not even sure exactly when and where they happened. Matthew reports two of these. In a different spot in Jesus' ministry, in a different location, geographically, even Matthew reports them. But that's not necessarily an indication that Scripture is inconsistent with itself. It is, rather, a matter of emphasis that these gospel writers recall these these conversations that Jesus has had with with individuals as he traveled about in the course of his ministry, and they place them in their gospel account at points of emphasis. Luke has told us here already in these recent verses that Jesus is now traveling to Jerusalem. The stakes for following him are becoming more and more clear, and those stakes are high. And so, the ordinary expectations of life and the persuasive power that they hold over us may easily become obstacles and stand in the way. And so, Jesus says to this one, if you follow me, you need to know that the foxes of the field and the birds of the air, they probably will sleep more peacefully at night than you will. In other words, the home to which you've grown accustomed and the schedule which you prefer to follow, and even the pillow on which you lay your head, all of those ordinary things that you've come to expect in this life, just how important are those things to you? If you follow me, he says, then part of that price will be to set aside the persuasive power that those things wield in your life. And that's kind of troubling to us, isn't it? I mean, Is Jesus saying here, is he saying to this man that if you're going to come and follow me, if you want to be a disciple, then you need to live a life of monastic poverty. That's something that Christians have struggled with, of course, for ages and ages and ages. What does it mean to be a disciple? Must I literally sleep with my head on a rock out in the field and deprive myself of all the worldly comforts that I know? No. Unequivocally, no. I mean, we know historically that the disciples had homes. They had houses in which they lived with their families. Peter's house in Capernaum. Even to this day, the location of it is historically known by the tradition of history and the, and the region and the people who were there and the church from the earliest ages. They know exactly where Peter's house in Capernaum was. And That's where Jesus based his ministry in Galilee, from that house. They slept at that house. They visited that house. They spent time at that house. Jesus never made Peter sell the house. 
And the disciples also had, had business assets as well. You know, they were fishermen, several of them were, and they had fishing boats. And we know that they didn't sell those boats and get rid of them because after the resurrection, they were back at work fishing on the Sea of Galilee. Remember, the resurrected Christ came and called them into the shore as they were fishing from their, their boat. They had assets. Even Zacchaeus, who we'll meet further along in Luke, Zacchaeus, the, the wealthy tax collector whom Jesus met and called to follow him, Zacchaeus gave away half of his possessions, not all of them, half of them in order to pay back the debts of his crimes. And then he used his home to host Jesus for a dinner party. And so we know that some of the disciples had these things. And so what's Jesus saying? He's saying that a disciple recognizes the powers that influence him. And very often those powers will be the ordinary things of life. A little later in Luke uh, chapter 18, we'll come upon a young man who comes to Jesus with a question very similar to these. He comes with the question, good teacher, he's very respectful, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, what's it going to cost me in order to be your disciple? That's what this young man wants to know. And So Jesus begins to answer him, probing him to see where his heart is, to show the man where his heart actually resides, what the powers are in his life. And he begins to say to him, well, you know what the law requires, right? Honor your father and mother. Do not murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. And the man says, okay, I've, I've kept all those rules since I was born, which he hadn't. And so Jesus wants to show him a little deeper into his heart. And so he says, okay. If that's what you think, then there's something else you need to do, another price you need to pay. You need to go sell everything you own and give the proceeds to the poor and then come follow me. And Luke tells us that the man went away sad because he had great wealth. Because the ordinary things of life are powerfully persuasive. To follow Jesus does not mean that you disavow all of those ordinary things, but rather that they themselves no longer are what make you feel at home in this world. Jesus says it maybe even more clearly in Matthew chapter 6. This is what Matthew reports. Jesus says, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink, or about your body, what you'll wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Do not worry, saying, what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Your heavenly Father knows that you need these ordinary things. He knows you need them. But you seek first the kingdom of God, and all that you need will be added to you. So here's a little bit of a test to see you know, how, how you think of yourself in this regard. What, how, how much power do the ordinary things hold over your life? And the test is this question. How do you view your work, your occupation, your vocation? I had a, a conversation with one of you uh, several days ago about this very topic, it's, which is a fascinating topic to consider as a Christian. What is the redemptive value of the work in which you invest your life, whether you receive a paycheck for it or not. What is the redemptive value of it? Dorothy Sayers was a writer many decades ago in England who wrote many thoughtful, thoughtful 
things for us to consider, and she wrote an essay entitled, Why Work? And I want to read to you a a couple of sentences from what she wrote. This is what she said. She said, Work is not a necessary drudgery to be undergone for the purpose of making money, but rather it's a way of life in which the nature of humanity should find its proper exercise and delight and so fulfill itself to the glory of God. It should, in fact, be thought of as a creative activity undertaken for the love of the work itself and mankind made in God's image should make things as God makes them for the sake of doing well a thing that is well worth doing. Now, the question to you is, does that sound ridiculous? Does that sound idealistic to say that my work is not just about the drudgery of pulling in a paycheck, but rather about the the intrinsic value of the work itself, that I can actually create something that has redemptive value in this world right now that is glorifying to God and even fulfilling to my soul. Does that seem idealistic to you? It is not. It is rather the fruit of discipleship because a disciple is freed from the power of ordinary expectations in this world in order to see that the redemptive work of the kingdom of God is more important. So that's one currency that we must pay. There's another currency that must be paid, though, in order to follow Jesus. This second snapshot conversation shows the idolatry of earthly loyalties. The idolatry of earthly loyalties. That's a currency that must be paid as well. Verse 59, he said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now this one, Jesus invited. We're not told all the story around him. This one didn't didn't necessarily come idealistically to Jesus. Hey, I'll go wherever you go. But rather this one, Jesus invited. You come and follow me. He did the same to Matthew, the tax collector. Remember, he came to walk by Matthew's tax booth and said, you follow me. And Matthew left his work and got up and followed him. He's done the same with this man, apparently, here. And the man didn't say no, but he did have a condition. His condition was, okay, but first let me. And that's a red flag, isn't it? I mean, that's a problem from the very beginning. But first let me fill in the blank with whatever it might be. And what it might be seems like a very reasonable request. He says, first let me go and bury my father. Now, it was a very significant family responsibility in ancient days, certainly in Israel, to honor your father and mother by burying your father and mother, by attending to them even in their their death. It was a very significant family responsibility. And so Jesus responds with a very harsh, it seems, response to that. Let the dead bury their own dead. What's he doing? Is he contradicting the Ten Commandments? Honor your father and mother. Is he contradicting those? No, surely not. Is he instituting a new era of priorities? Maybe. I mean, Jesus is a new Moses, as it were. And yet, he didn't come to do away with the law. I mean, he's very clear with the fact that he came to fulfill the law. And so, is Jesus saying to this man, just forget your parents, ignore them, forget them? No, no, he's definitely not saying that. For one, I think this man's, this man's father was not yet dead. 
burial in those days happened quite quickly because a dead body in in Israel, in Israelite culture, in the Jewish religion, a dead body was unclean. And those who were attending to it also were unclean. And so they wouldn't be about traveling around the neighborhood and having conversations with wandering itinerant preachers. They were attending to a dead body, and burial happened very quickly there. And if the death, if the death were, were near, you would stay at home. You would stay, you would stay nearby waiting for this to happen, this unclean event to happen. No, this man's, this man's father is not yet dead. In fact, it could be years before he dies. I think he's giving an excuse. In a sense, he's saying to Jesus, Lord, I'm interested. Okay, you've, you've captured my imagination, and I'm curious about what you're teaching, and I'm interested, I'm curious, I'm, I'm willing to come along. But keep me on your list, because I've got some things I'm more interested in. I've got some earthly loyalties that I want to attend to. And when I'm done with those things, then I'll come, and I'll find you, and I'll, I'll follow you as you want for me to do. Now, we all have loyalties, don't we, in this world, on this earth. We all have loyalties, and family would certainly be a very strong one. I mean, after all, family is a gospel idea. But even family can become idolatry. You shall have no other gods before me. And so in in Matthew, again, Matthew chapter 10, Jesus writes of it this way, another very clear exposition of this point. He says, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Jesus is saying here, I will not play second fiddle to anybody. Not to a father or mother. Not to a son or daughter. Not to a husband or wife. If your earthly loyalties are greater than me, then you do not know me. So why might this man have been so devoted to these earthly loyalties? What, why, what are some reasons why he might have been so, so connected and devoted to these loyalties that he had? It might be that his loyalty was driven by the comfort of familiar surroundings. I like my house. I like my friends, my group of people. I like my my neighborhood. I like the status that I have in the pecking order of society. I like the opportunities that I have in this city. And let me just enjoy these things for a season, Jesus. And when they begin to expire and grow cold, then I'll be willing to consider something else like following you. Or it might be that his loyalty is attributed to maintaining the approval of familiar people. You know, maybe this man would have said to Jesus, my father back at home would not approve of my following you. And so I'll just wait until he's dead, and then I won't have to answer to him for it. Because my dad at home, if I were to go home and tell him, hey, dad, I just got a new job in Jerusalem as the the mayor, the civic leader of the society there, I'm going to go and take this job to which I I have been invited to, to take. My dad would be very pleased. He'd be very proud, and he'd send me on with with great approval, and I want his approval. His approval is very important to me. But 
if I came to him and told him I was going to follow you, Jesus, he would say, you're going to waste your time. I mean, I was told that. I can remember going to seminary and leaving a job and going to seminary and being told that's a waste of time. You might end up homeless on the street because there's no future in ministry. Why would you go and do that? And I was tempted to think it, too, because I was more concerned with having the approval of people who expected my earthly loyalty. So maybe his loyalty is because of that. Or maybe his loyalty could be to gain the acceptance of earthly organizations. Right? That fraternity that he wanted to be a part of. That sorority that he wanted to to be accepted by. That country club or that business association or that charitable cause. Whatever it is that's out there that is seemingly important in itself and and does good things and, and contributes good things to society. That thing, I want to accept me, and it's important to me. And yet, what was Jesus' command to this man? He said, let the dead bury their own dead. In other words, let the world take care of of itself, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, what earthly organization, among all those that I mentioned or any that you can imagine, that's not the church, What earthly organization is going to proclaim the kingdom of God? They're not. And therefore, our earthly loyalties are a currency of discipleship. They must be paid as disciples to follow Jesus. Finally, there's a third currency that that has to be paid that we come to with this third conversation. And, And this currency is the longing to hold on to nostalgic attachments. The longing to hold on to nostalgic attachments. That's a currency that must be paid. Verse 61, still another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Now these these three conversations that Luke has, has offered to us here, it seems to me he's arranged in some thematic order. You can see some development among them. First of all, to follow Jesus, you must leave behind your reliance on things. In other words, the, the, the ordinary expectations of life, the pillow on which you lay your head and such, the things that you rely on, you must leave your dependence on those behind. And secondly, you must leave behind your reliance on family and relationships, that is, to your earthly loyalties. And then following all of those, having left those behind, in order to follow Jesus, you can't be looking back longingly at those things that you've left behind with some kind of nostalgic attachment. You know, we often long for the way that things used to be. You young ones have heard your parents say that before. I'm sure that you have. Back when I was in high school, back when I was your age, and there's always some qualifier of how things were better then. I'm the worst among us at doing that. You can ask my kids. They'll tell you. Dad's always saying, back when I was in high school, you know, back when I was your age, this, you know, I'm sorry for you guys, the world you live in. You know, that's the way that we do, don't we? We nostalgically attach ourselves to things that are back behind us. We want to look back. Augustine was, was a famous theologian. You may know of him from back in the fourth century He was a professor in Milan, Italy, and became quite well-known in his day. He was very successful, very, very, very intelligent. 
and respected, and he was a swinging single guy. He was a promiscuous man. And when he came under the power of the gospel, beginning to be persuaded of the grace of Jesus, he very famously, or maybe I should say infamously, prayed, Lord, make me pure, but not yet. There are just some more things I want to do, Lord. Just some more things I'm looking back on longingly that I want to enjoy in my life before you actually take hold of me and make me pure. Augustine understood this truth. He he recognized, he realized that you can't look back. Once you begin to follow Jesus as a disciple, you can't look back longingly on those things. Now, you heard that reading earlier this morning from 1 Kings 19. Elijah, the great prophet, came and, and, and brought his cloak, and he laid his cloak over the shoulders of Elisha, his understudy. In other words, he was transferring the power of the prophetic office to Elisha. The, the transfer was happening, and Elisha was literally plowing his field. He had a, a, a team of 12 oxen that were yoked together, and he was plowing a field with a team of, of 12 oxen. That must have been quite a field. And Elijah showed up with his cloak and, and gave it to him, and Elisha responded with a request. He said to Elijah, he said, let me go kiss my father and mother goodbye and then I'll come and follow you. Now, does that sound familiar to this text? It sounds kind of like what Jesus is dealing with here with this man. And Elisha was allowed to go. Elijah just kind of blew it off and said, whatever, go do what you need to do. And so Elisha goes and does what he had requested to do. So why was Elisha allowed to do that but not this man? Well, what did Elisha do? If you, if you remember, if you heard the text that was read to you, what Elisha did was he went and he slaughtered the oxen that were pulling his plow. He took the yokes, the wooden apparatus that was binding them together, and he set them on fire. He burned the, the, the yokes with a big fire, and he used that fire to roast the oxen. It was quite a feast, and he fed the neighbors. He said goodbye to mom and dad, and he went and he followed Elisha. In other words, he did what he did with absolute finality. There was no looking back for him, none whatsoever. No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back, Jesus says, is fit for service in the kingdom. So Jesus is using this farming metaphor, isn't he? Now, why would a farmer who's plowing a field be tempted to look backwards behind him while he's plowing, whether he's driving a tractor or he's driving a a team of oxen? Why would he be tempted to look back? Well, probably to admire what's behind him. <clears throat> right, he wants to look back and see the, the perfectly straight furrow of, of now plantable soil that he's tilled up with his, his plow. He wants to admire what's behind him, just like Augustine had done, looking back and admiring his life of promiscuity and, and longing for that. A farmer might do the same, looking back on his, his perfectly, row, perfectly tilled row of, of soil. Because there in the rocky soil of Israel, a farmer looking back to admire that kind of thing could easily be set off course by the rocks that lay ahead of him. And so it's a metaphor that, <clears throat> that's explaining what's going on here. Now think about it this way. What happens to a marriage when a husband, a young husband, begins to look back longingly on the freedom of bachelorhood and he remembers the freedom that he had to just go hang out with the guys late at night and you know anytime he wanted to he had no obligations outside of himself and he could 
could hang out with the guys and go to the sports bar and do whatever he wanted to in that way. And he begins to long for those days. What happens in the marriage when he's longing for those days? Or what happens to a marriage when a young wife, <clears throat> now married, is recognizing that her husband is well, a little bit disappointing? I mean, does that ever happen, wives? Sometimes husbands are not quite all they were cracked up to be. I expect that all of you are thinking in your hearts, yes, yeah, I'm, I, I think you probably are. Surely you are, because no husband is all that he's cracked up to be. And, and, a, and a wife begins at some point maybe to look back longingly and think about that high school boyfriend back in the past who was, ah, oh, he was just so delightful. He was smart, and my parents liked him, and he said, yes, sir, and yes, ma'am. And he was just wonderful. And we begin to idealize that. Now, what happens to a marriage when those things happen? Hearts begin to get distracted, and they begin to even grow cold, imagining something to be ideal that was, in fact, not ideal at all. So the same will happen to you spiritually. I mean, that's what Jesus is saying to this man. You can't be looking back longingly on those things that, that generate such nostalgic attachment for you because your heart will wander. I've heard these, these nostalgic attachments described uh, by, by one pastor as Frankenstein. They are like Frankenstein. I mean, what, Frankenstein the monster. What, what made Frankenstein a monster? It was that he was an assembly of, of various dead parts all sewn together and then jolted to artificial sort of life by a jolt of electricity, right? So that's... That's Frankenstein. He was brought to, brought to life by this jolt of electricity, but it was all fake. So when you look back longingly on the, the, various, the various ideals of your past, the things, the work, the relationships, the volunteerism, the civic responsibilities, all those things where you sought purpose, when you look back longingly on those things for their importance in your life, what you're doing in that nostalgia, is you're trying to sew together all of those various dead parts, hoping to jolt them to life with some gospel electricity. And it doesn't work. It simply does not work. Remember what Jesus said. Your Father in heaven knows you need these things, but you seek first the kingdom of God. In Christ, you have a new life. And he will not coexist with the old one. He won't. He simply won't. <clears throat> In Christ, you're a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. There's a price to be paid to follow Jesus. And it will be paid. It will be paid more and more, you know, as, as you go along with him. And the payment is not extracted all at once. It's not, it's not all taken up front. It's gradual over the course of your life. And you who have walked as disciples for years have seen how he's challenged the ordinary expectations of your life. You've seen that. You've seen that happen to you. And, and you have had to set those things aside as you've gone. And you who've walked as disciples for some years have, have been faced with the idolatry in your own heart of the earthly loyalties that you have. And you've had to make a choice. You've been forced to make a choice at some point along the way. And you have looked back. You have looked back with longing hearts and you have found peril in doing so. 
So will you continue to pay the price to follow Jesus? May God give you the strength to do it. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, let's pray.